Northern Guides to Happiness. Welcome to episode 34. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far and welcome if you're just joining us. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with Andrea and Kath. Hello. Hi there. <laughs> How are we? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling quite pleased with myself actually today because I went out in the garden and discovered that the bird feeder that I thought every bird in the area was avoiding because it's been full for so long, is actually three quarters empty. Excellent. So I'm attracting Joy. wildlife. <laughs> Always good. We've not had much garden talk recently, actually. No, uh, we no. did go through a bit of a gardener's world phase, didn't we? When we just kept talking about <laughs> gardens, but uh, it's all been a bit quiet. Oh, that's yeah. nice. We'll, we'll have to start talking about <laughs> sea things, I think. I think so. Yes, this could recurring blue space yeah. chat. Absolutely, Andrea. What about you? How are you doing? Yeah, well, um, I've just swept the front doorstep actually from Christmas <laughs> Eve because, um, <laughs> obviously, like having being isolated, I didn't realise that our front step was covered in porridge and glitter, which, um, you know, nice. rain, reindeer foods, and I just, mm-hmm. yeah. Appalling, really. Time for it to go. Time for it to go. But no, I've just been, um, my little rediscovery this week has been a a book that sprung to my head. I've had it for years and hadn't seen it or looked at it for about 10 years. And it's a book by Maya Angelou Mm -hmm. um, called The Welcome Table. So it's stories um, accompanied by recipes and I think there must be something about needing comfort because all the recipes are like smothered, smoked, twice baked. <laughs> oh, sounds like my sort of book. Pickled. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm desperate to kind of go for it and experiment this weekend with all the lovely recipes in there. Oh. But there must have been something that that triggered the the need to to find that book and. Maybe it was Andy's uh, interview from last week. Very possibly. Could have been, could have been. (laughs) Inspired by the Stotties. Uh, I've been busy planning some of our workshops as part of the podcast project. So we've been asking some of our previous interviewees to sort of get in touch and get involved and, and help us deliver some workshops. So We've got Michael Cunliffe, who's going to be doing a, a surrealist art workshop. And we've had got Dan Pye coming in to do a talk on, on uh, the observatory and exoplanets and is there life out there? We're getting um, Libby from the first Geordie guy. She's going to do a talk on what, what is happiness, inspired by her politics of happiness course. So we've got loads of activities coming up. So if people want to find out more, they can go on our socials and they'll... There'll be links there somewhere, but uh, we're, we're collecting for the NUFC food bank as well. Rather than charge an entrance fee, we're asking people to, to make a, a pay-as-you-feel donation to the West End Food Bank because we interviewed Bill Corcoran from the food bank as part of the project as well. So places are booking up fast, so uh, it's going to be great to get people involved in some of the things that our interviewees mm. have found happiness. So it's been quite exciting planning it all, actually. But yeah... But shall we introduce this week's guest interview anyway? Enough of us talking. I had a great time recently chatting with Cliff Evers, 
who provided another fascinating discussion around blue space and well-being, which seems to have come up quite a few times now on the podcast in, in different ways. So Cliff works at Newcastle University in the School for Arts and Culture with a particular research interest in coastal communities. Lots of great stuff, as always, in this interview. But enough of me talking, here's Cliff. Cliff, a very warm welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness. How are you today? I'm good today. Today we have the skies are clear for a change and the sea is blue, so I'm happy. <laughs> it looks like you're looking out the window. What can you see out the window? Yeah, I can see St. Mary's Lighthouse, which is one of my favourite places. I can see Blythe um, and I can see the water. So I'm pretty fortunate like that. Now, we before we hit record, uh, I sort of commented that you uh, you look like you were cold because you have a jacket on. You're, you're uh, recording up in your loft. Is that right? That's right. This, uh, this working from home thing, it's, uh, oh, it gets cold, but it is what it is. It is, absolutely. A few hot water bottles to keep us warm <laughs> yes, and we're sitting exactly. at our desk. <laughs> exactly, hot water bottles. It's a good idea. I haven't got a hot water bottle, but that would help a lot. Or endless cups of tea, that helps. Yeah, too. absolutely. That keeps us going. Tea, coffee, hot water bottles. We'll, we'll be all right. <laughs> Um, would you mind introducing yourself, Cliff? Just telling the listeners uh, who you are. Yeah, um, so I'm Cliff Evers. I'm a lecturer at Newcastle University. Um, I originally come from Australia, uh, Brisbane, Gold Coast region. Then I spent a lot of time in Sydney. And then I spent a lot of time uh, in China, mostly. I spent about eight years in China. Um, living in Shanghai and Ningbo, which is a coastal city. And uh, then I moved to the northeast probably about six, seven years ago. And, uh, and I look into, I do work around um, uh, blue spaces, nature, um, well-being, experiences of well-being, and different lifestyle activities people do in those spaces to find uh, themselves and to enjoy nature I guess. So we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that later on but you know moving from Australia to China to the northeast uh, what's that been like you know what's Newcastle like compared to those places? Well it's very different (laughs) it's a short (laughs) answer Um, well Brisbane and Gold Coast when I was growing up was wasn't so big as it is now. Now it's huge. They've sort of come together and, and, and joined together. So Brisbane was like a big country town at that time. And then I moved to the go- uh, to Sydney uh, to study, etc. And so Sydney as a student was just like, of course, fun. Mm-hmm. And you're in the yeah. middle of the city. And yeah. it was the lifestyle and the big city lights. And, and it's got the beautiful harbour there. I mean, and I lived on the coast and I've... You know, it was right next to Bondi. So, yeah, life was pretty good there. It sounds pretty good. It was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty good. I had no money. I didn't have a penny. But I, you, that's okay. You, you, can, you could get by at that time uh, in sort of share houses. And then the move to China was quite dramatic. I had to learn a lot about China. I had a lot of preconceptions. But when I got there, the people in China were, of course, fantastic. 
mm-hmm. and they were very super generous, super generous. And yeah, we spent a lot of good years there, uh, meeting people, traveling China, but also, you know, the work was really engaging. It was like a, it was a, a university there that um, taught all in English, but the students um, came through the Chinese education system. So. They were super enthusiastic, mm-hmm. um, and so there was lots of learning going both ways there. Um, there was a few challenges there because it's so culturally different. Yeah, uh, that that was challenging. So you sort of had your ups and downs there, and then getting to the northeast. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, um, I didn't know anything about the northeast before <laughs> I arrived. I think that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, and then I hit the ground here, and like one of the first trips I. I, I was like, oh, trying to get my bearings and I was in Newcastle and then um, I was quite interested in industrial coastline. So I was down Teesside Way and I really love South Gare and, and the Red Car Cleveland area. But then I, I personally discovered Northumberland mm-hmm. and then my mind was blown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. This, this is, is me. It. This, this is, is it. it. This is me. <laughs> Oh, um, it's just, that's magical. So then, yeah, I tried to get as close. I had to stay close to work, but then uh, we moved down the coast um, near Whitley Bay. Um, so it gives me good access to Northumberland um, mm-hmm. and also down to Teesside because I still go down yeah. Teesside a lot. Yeah. I think quite a few people that we've talked to on the podcast have kind of talked about how, you know, what a great location Newcastle is in terms of access to different landscapes and different parts of oh. the, the, you know, the, the region. You know, you're just a few miles away from the, the, the beautiful countryside of Northumberland, mm-hmm. you know, a short journey to the coast. You know, you've got the cities as well and the, the urban areas. It just seems like the perfect combination really it is it took a little bit it's it's a lot slower than shanghai let's put it that way (laughs) a lot less less crowded than shanghai shanghai is on fire at the moment Mm. um and it was when i was living there it's just it's just incredible but that frenetic pace does wear you down after a while well (laughs) did wear me down doesn't wear a lot of the locals down they love it but yeah, and I've done a bit of time in London, but I don't particularly like the South. Sorry, Southerners. <laughs> no, I won't take offence. <laughs> uh, it's just the North just has everything. And Newcastle, I didn't know about the cultural life up here at first, but then you start finding these little theatre groups doing things. There's, um, there's the really cool little short film group of people who make films. It's the artists... The local artists are always out and about doing things, uh, coming up with new projects that you can tap into. There's always something going on if you, you know, and it happens at that real organic community level a lot. And I love that. I just love that. I always uh, sort of joke with people that Newcastle's a village. Everybody knows somebody. It's like that whole six degrees of separation. Everybody yeah. knows so-and-so or, you know, somebody else knows somebody else. And, uh, yeah, everyone knows one another, which is great. But the dialect takes a bit of getting used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I moved from China. I was used to sort of blocking out and just going along with uh, conversations and not really knowing what's being said. And then I found I had to do the same in my first few years in the north because I'd be speaking to someone who's from Wall's End or something and they had a particular 
uh, way of speaking and then you'd be sort of down T side <laughs> and they'd be speaking in quite bit. I'm like, what are you trying to say? And they'd have to repeat themselves and I, and, and, uh, I hope I didn't annoy too many people by it, the amount of times <laughs> they had to say, oh, well, is that again? Yeah. I remember years ago, I, I did an introduction to British Sign Language course at, oh, wow. at uh, cool. Newcastle College, just the, the very basics. And I was taught by somebody from Gateshead and then I was sort of uh, all enthusiastically practicing my sign language with somebody I think from North Tyneside, and they kind of said, "Oh no, that that's a that's a Gateshead sign. Wow. You know, th- th- this is the sign for this word." And it was just fascinating that even within the northeast region, there were there were yes. dialects within the sign language as well. It was just oh, it was fascinating. I loved it. Yeah, really interesting. I, I do yeah. find like you find I found the same thing in China. Like you know, you move from one side of Shanghai to the other side of Shanghai, and you've change dialects you know mm. and then it's all crossing but yeah it's it's just so dense with different dialects in such a mm. small space in the northeast uh yeah you're right it is fascinating but it does make it tricky for some of us <laughs> us immigrants you know anyway for your work um you're 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 here in newcastle um you're a senior lecturer is that right at That's the right, school yes. for arts and culture at newcastle university you know, very basic question. What what does that mean? What does that involve? Well, it's it basically what I do is um, I do I spend part of my time teaching, doing lectures, do, teaching into media and communication courses, and and helping people, young people, particularly um, unpack how the media works, but also how to make media. And uh, but I'm more interested in the cultural side of things so for example the politics that plays out in the media um, and they may be local politics but it also might be I, I've been I've looked into things such as sports and media and the debates about different sports and issues uh-huh. for example around the Olympics and how that's played out around the world so we have conversations around that then I do my research side and my mm-hmm. research side is you get allocated a certain amount of time to and you seek out some funding sometimes you're successful most time you're not but you see but you you're you're given some time to identify a project or an area that's of interest not just locally but internationally and to look into that and what i look into is i look into sort of uh, people's relationship with place particularly blue spaces like lakes rivers seaside and how their leisure or recreational activities, what they do in those spaces, and how that comes to shape or their relationships with that place, and how that place determines which recreation they enjoy, and who gets access and who doesn't. So that's my research side. So I got my pedagogy, my, my teaching and learning side, and then I do that. And then you have, your, of course, administration side of my job the paperwork, the paperwork. yes <laughs> but you know when you work it I'm, I'm very fortunate you know Newcastle University is a, is actually when it comes to the administrative side they're really quite um I have to say they're one of the best institutions I've worked for because they really try and push the envelope and I'm not just mm-hmm. saying that they like when it comes to equality and diversity and inclusion and outreach and engagement with community that is their ethos <laughs> and mm-hmm. that is what they really they really try to do so 
I feel like I lucked out, to be perfectly fair, <laughs> to land, land, land in such a job. And I feel really, I, I often wake up feeling really privileged to have that job. It's hard. It's not easy. But yeah, I'm very privileged with that job. So let's talk about your research interest then, because that was one of the sort of main reasons we sort of uh, linked up uh, through uh, Michael Cunliffe, who was one of yes. our previous interviewees. So yeah, tell us about your research interest then, particularly that what you were saying just then about sort of people's connections to blue spaces and, and where they find their sort of well-being, happiness, yes. I suppose, in, in those spaces. Tell us a bit more. Okay, so um, I'm particularly, in, uh, well, because I grew up a surfer, so my whole background, ever since I was six years old, I've surfed. Um, I've always hung around surfing. I sort of lived in the sea, you know, mm -hmm. swimming. And then if there was a river or lake, I'd swim <laughs> or I'd dive. <laughs> I'd do it. If it had something to do with water, I did it. And I think that carried over to my research. And, and then I had discussions with other researchers and we started saying, well, there's a lot of discussion about the threats of blue spaces. There was at that time a lot of research mm. about it, like, for example, the risks of drowning, um, health risks in terms of um, pollution and water quality. And then we said, well, there's also this well-being side. You go in the water. Often people, through that engagement, feel good about it. But what does that mean when you say you feel mm. good? Is it an emotional thing? Is it purely physiological? Is, is it, um, does it change your relationship with that place? So I was really interested in that. And I started more recently, that's the area I started getting interested in and working through. But then, because when I lived in China, I was so exposed to pollution. Like I loved China, but the, the pollution, particularly in blue spaces, was very bad. Yeah. It was, it was really bad. And Sydney has bad pollution as well. Sydney Harbour is... Very polluted. Okay. A lot of people see the beautiful blue Sydney. Yes. And, yeah. and yeah. actually the Sydney beaches have a long history of sewage pollution. And people mm -hmm. have built up this. They'd have, they've had to negotiate pollution for a long time there. They have part of the heritage. It's been cleaned up a lot now, but it still has problems. And then in the northeast, I noticed that there are these places, post-industrial or continuing industrial places, which are long, have a long legacy of pollution. Now, some of those places people are trying to heal. Mm. And so they're healing and the place is healing sometimes. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Or they're recovering from that industry. Or they're having to make decisions about, well, do we want the industry to continue here? Or do we need nature to come back here? And people, when I started speaking to people in the Northeast, because they had this long history, this industrial history, but also this long history of enjoying the sea and, and loving the North Sea and, and, and using the North Sea for recreation, they had a lot to teach us. So my research was about, okay, I'm going to collect these stories. W what lessons do they have for us? What can they tell us? What difficult decisions are they having to make sometimes? So then pollution came into this conversation for me, and that's where I'm sort of at now. So tell us about some of these stories, if you're able to. What, what have people been telling you? Well, there's stories like, for example, some people, some elders will talk about, speak about how the river Tees has used to be one of the most polluted rivers 
in the world, mm. right? Um, because, you know, we know the long history of industrialization and it's a working river, right? Mm. And with the port and the steelworks and agriculture and, and chemical factory. <laughs> mm. I mean, this is all going on around the yeah, river. It's not, it's not going in its favor, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was really bad. <laughs> For, yeah. for a long, long, long time. In more recent years, it's cleaned up. And they tell mm. you that process of it cleaning up. And one of the key signifiers, this one fisherman told me about, one of the key signs of that, he said, it was when the salmon started coming back. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, when the salmon come, it started coming back, I said, oh, something's changing. So the salmon was saying, hey, the water's getting better, right? Uh, and there were stricter, stricter regulations being introduced um, to help the river recover. Now, the river is still polluted. Um, and when just because it's gotten cleaner, one guy said to me, well, it's gotten cleaner, but the starting point was really bad. <laughs> so he says, we're still, we're still in the dark some, somewhat sometimes. Um, and we'd like to know more and we'd like to help it clean up further. Um, so they have this, this really astute awareness of the state of the river um, and, and, then, and that long connection with it, I think that long history, they tell us a different heritage story. Then mm-hmm. you can look at the statistics and the measurements, etc. How do they feel about the river and, and you know and and is the river just a working river is do some people see it as more uh, uh, not as a resource as something else entirely as some as their kin as as something they've always lived with it's been part mm. of teesside it's been part of their community it's enabled them to have what they have so they want to look after it and protect it um so there's those sorts of stories then there's the stories of for example surfers who after rain know it's obviously more polluted in the three days we know 72 hours after rainfall that's oh, when the, i didn't i didn't know that that you get a lot of runoff that's when there's a lot of runoff okay. um and uh the rivers get more polluted and a lot of the beaches get more polluted and we get you know the overflows from mm-hmm. the water companies which lead to sewage pollution um and uh they go in the water anyway a lot of them now they know they shouldn't and they'll say oh i know i shouldn't go in you know uh you know i've been sick before and you're like really and they're like yeah 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 i've been so sick been laid up for a week you know throwing yes. up i've had but infections they go in again. and they're like but the waves are just too good i'm going <laughs> in and, and, and like they'll go in and they come out and they develop certain i guess you sort of urban legends around this mm-hmm. and they talk about mm-hmm. oh, you've got to drink full fat coca-cola you know and you that drink helps. that afterwards and that'll kill anything in your gut oh, you're good to go happy days and then what does that say about coca-cola well that's right <laughs> I, I mean and uh it's and then some i've met a few people who um wash off they, they have this little ritual there they'll they'll wash off they have fresh they always carry fresh water to wash off afterwards particularly on those days so yeah, so that's interesting that relationship with it, and then so they they love it so much that they're willing to get because a, they yeah, get so much from they, yeah, but they get so much from mentally, yes. psychologically they get so much yeah. joy. Surfers yeah. call it stoke from that activity. 
Yeah. And you see it with sometimes with swimmers too. Mm. I, the wild swimmers, they're like, oh, I probably shouldn't. I'll just, I'll just ignore it. Colour coats, for example, has had real trouble with pollution. They had a, it was sort of, it's a working harbour, but also there was sewage leaking from one of the pipes, etc. And and you know, one of the open water swimmers said to me, "There's a sign there which they measure." It was like an LED sign, and they say, okay, it's safe to swim, it's moderate, etc. And And they said they walk past and just put their hand next to their face. And la, just, la, 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 I don't know anything. <laughs> because they want to swim, right? They, they want their cold water swim. And they yeah, said, this is yeah. what I'm going to do. This is where I'm with my friends. This is, so they have to balance. They're, it's a balancing act that they work out what are the costs and benefits of this. And they work this out, and they work out the risk themselves. I was going to say, the risk management, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like really... Yeah personal risk management and personal perceptions of what is well-being for them so which is of course these are fascinating stories and then you hear stories about people say one fisherman was sort of saying to me oh see when the currents run this way you'll see the see that different color of water that that's because that's coming down that the river is emptying in this way and he says i don't know what's up the river but it always looks like that at certain tides. So he says, so fish over this side. <laughs> don't, don't. I'm like, oh, so they, they adapt to the pollution and they work out, people work out strategies, um, which is, of course, for a researcher, you're like, wow, these are local experts community mm. experts and when people say the word experts they think these are scientifically trained these are your official government officials um, these are the these people um, have to have certain qualifications but these people have a lifetime of qualifications and yeah. so my interest now is like i'm writing all this down right i'm like okay you got to do this you can do this you can do this here's another step you can take here's a precaution you can take here's a way to to address the issue and then you share that with other places around the world who face similar challenges mm. and they come back with theirs and they say oh we do this and we do this and and you get this community knowledge and it's so valuable it's so valuable and uh and these people are just yeah i love it i, I they, they're teaching me so much so, so how do you sort of balance, because you were sort of talking there before about, you know, data and facts. Mm. And this isn't data and facts, what you're gathering. It's more the sort of a qualitative, anecdotal, yeah. conversational stuff. You know, as a researcher, how, where does that balance alongside, you know, hard facts that a lot of people like to see in, in research? Yeah, well, you know, hard facts, there's, there's a huge debate in there's a shift in academia, I think. Now, yes, hard facts, the scientific data, that's a particular approach mm. to these situations. And it's, it's a particular, you have to have a particular starting point. You have to say, here are the measurements. We're going to do the measurements. People are objects. People will mm. always act in a rational way. Um, uh, and we put together these facts and here is the story. But as you know, people's lives are messy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And s people, when you read facts, you go, oh, this is just the data. And scientists already know this now. They go, I've given you all the data, but you still do it. <laughs> and they're like, well, because there's more involved here, you know. There's, there's my emotional mm -hmm. life. 
um, my 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 embodied experience of this. What you see is just simple data. I feel, mm. and this this emotional life, this this embodied life, this 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 the way nature works and we interact with it. Storytelling is facts in its own way. It's it's perceptions, it's values, it's attitudes. And we and in the West we go, oh, this is this shouldn't fit together. But scientists are now saying we have to tell our data through stories. <laughs> you know? Finally. Yes, we need <laughs> stories and, 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 and we need art to convey this and we need to mm. listen to people through the way they want to tell data. They their data is told in different ways and in but this is not so uncommon in other cultures, you see. Because in other cultures, if you think about like many First Nations and Indigenous cultures, they've always shared knowledge through storytelling and that is their facts. And you know when you read poetry, there's, there's, there's movement, there's a, a room for play. And when you look at art, there's, there's not, it's, things aren't pinned down. You have to, when you open see it, open to interpretation. Open yes. to interpretation, and yes. and it's not that you're trying to pin a point down. You're trying to say prompt people to reflect, mm. and it's through the process of reflecting and thinking things through that you learn. I can repeat a fact, but have I learned that fact? There's, mm-hmm. I think there's something different there, and you know the northeast is famous for storytelling. Oh, I mean, this is yeah. how people have shared knowledge here for eons. So that is as valid as your classic scientific data, in my opinion, and in my academic approach. Um, and I think there has to be that conversation between the scientists who take that more classical approach and the storytellers and the art makers. And this is starting to happen. This is well, that's what that's what that's what I do as well through 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 this podcast, but also through the digital storytelling work that we do. That there's something so much more powerful mm. hearing somebody tell their story in their own voice rather than just reading about it in in text form in a in a report. It's just completely different. People telling their experiences, uh, their their life stories. Um, yes, I'm, I'm with you all the way. Absolutely. With, with, and we're on that point. Like, it's like the way we always, some people are not comfortable with the written word. Mm. They're just not comfortable with it. So when you want to learn from them or they want to share something or they want to be part of building knowledge, they have to have ways that they can be a part of that, that they feel comfortable contributing through. Like some people are more comfortable contributing through theatre, mm. right? They, they, they lose themselves in theatre and that, this is how I'm going to express what I think about this topic. Or, you know, classic oral storytelling or music or, or painting or craft or pottery or knitting, you know. I, you know, I love people who express themselves through knitting and, 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 and that just opens ways to communicate with each other opens ways Mm. to learn from each other Uh, and the more avenues we have to learn from each other i think that conversation is richer for it i I, at least i think so (laughs) absolutely do people in the stories that you've heard have people 
talked or used the word happiness, contentment, joy when they're thinking and, and talking about blue space? They do. Um, we, we call it, it's often referred to as well-being in academic literature. <laughs> but people, if I say well-being, some people sort of get it. And then other people are like, mm, what do you mean? And then, and then they say, but I feel happy. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is, and, um, and when I get out, I, I, you know, I just feel completely satisfied. Mm -hmm. Or it's life affirming. Yeah. Or, or I'm a bit troubled. They don't use the term well-being. This becomes almost like an academic discourse. Yes. Uh, it's becoming more popular now because there's a big well-being industry built around the notion of well-being but it tends to individualize well-being you know well-being or is something for the individual to work on whereas well-being is and what people often speak about when they speak about happiness and joy and satisfaction to me they talk about a really very relational thing what are you know they talk about the, the wider issues in the community, okay, the, be it, um, you know, so, social and economic issues, they play a role and they connect that and say, and then I use the blue water to help me cope with that. Mm -hmm. um, or it might be other issues, more traditional ideas about health. So they, and, or they might be talking about, well, the place I go is sick. For example, the natural setting is damaged. Mm. Um, and so by helping it regenerate and grow again, I feel good. So, so they, it's a very relational thing. So, mm. so um, they use quite different terms. They talk about growth, but not necessarily personal growth. They talk about, but they'll talk about healing. They'll talk about um, future. The future comes up a lot, looking forward. They look forward to this. Yes. And when somebody says they look forward to this, it gives them something, right? And it's mm. a very generic, everyday way of speaking about well-being. That's interesting, the, the forward thinking, because a couple of people on the podcast have also talked about retrospective happiness. So kind ah. of looking back and thinking, at the time, I, I didn't enjoy it because it was I was really nervous mm -hmm. or whatever if it was a performance or a, or a sporting event or something, but actually looking back now, it was a great thing to be part of. And I feel happy that way. So that's interesting, that sort of different way of looking at time, I suppose, and happiness. Like our emotional life is never settled, right? And mm. events that happen in our life, they, they're contingent. So, so how we experienced them in the past Things don't stay the same, and then yeah. you sort of yeah. you've got new experiences to draw upon, and and today you just came out of the cold water, you feel it's being bracing, and then you you're sitting there, <laughs> and you've got a nice warm drink, and you're all rugged up, and you're talking to your friend, and then you recount something from your past, and you go, actually, I was really happy during that, I, and you make a different connection to it, yeah. because the nerves yeah. have gone. So you're right, there yeah. is that retrospective, but there's sorts. And then you see people say, I want to feel that again. So they work mm. on trying to get that feeling that fully, and it's fully embodied. Yeah. Happiness can be totally fully embodied. Um, and I love that. And sometimes we think it's just psychological. But, you know, when you're really happy, 
it's hard to sit still like you get tingles in your skin you just yeah it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing but, but I think because we feel it at different intensities throughout our life so it waxes and wanes um, and uh, and I pe you know and people enjoy that ride but for, for other people it can be bigger dips Yes. And longer periods without it, uh, which can mm. make the highs very high. <laughs> mm. But um, I think they'd like it more often, but certain social conditions might prevent them f mm -hmm. from achieving that. Um, and so I think that's part of the goal of those who are more privileged to, to, to help remove those barriers for other people that they, they blocks them from getting those things, which is part of what the research tries to do. Yeah, you, you in our in our pre-recording chat, you talked about class divide mm. and how you know you were finding that there were some communities close to the coast who had never visited yes. the coast. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? So you get like even if you think about um, uh, uh, North Tyneside, you've got people who are in some of the poorer regions or more um, uh, marginalised region areas of North Tyneside who you speak to. And they're like, oh, no, I haven't been to the beach in, in 10 years. You're mm. like, oh, why? Well, you know, we don't have a lot of money after we, after we pay the rent. <laughs> we, we pay for the food, school. I'm a single parent. I can't get down there. You know, we'd have to load up all everything. We'd get everything on the bus. We'd get down there. And then we get there, and it's quite stressful for me because I've got to watch all the kids. I'm not... And then I got to pack them all up, and and you never know when the with the weather in the North Sea, so it's going to change. Yeah. Uh, and then they go home, and sometimes they don't feel welcome in some beaches. They'll come down and they play their music, and every and some of the more middle class folk will be like, oh, they're noising up the beach, and and these people have made a great effort to get down the beach, and they bring their extended family, and they're having a great time, and so and they they try and feel happy, but then others are judging their happiness. And, and, and so you, I've encountered stories like that. I've been documenting stories like that because, you know, if it, that can be a great thing, particularly for, you know, if, if you can have a like minibus and bring a bunch of kids to the beach and they get to, they go crazy at color codes. They just go wild. They have the time of their life, right? And they're jumping off the piers and jetties and, you know, and they move around their groups and then some, some people go, oh, antisocial behavior. They just enjoying themselves. They're being happy. Yeah. Yeah. Just let them be happy for a while. They've got enough things to deal with day in, day out. And so I think there is a, that, that, that becomes quite classed, I think, mm. in, in many regards. Um, so there are pro programs uh, aimed at, you know, helping people uh, connect better with get access to sort of woodlands or rivers mm. or go for walks to access the sea, go coasteering, go kayaking. They're great, but they, there's not many. I was going to say, what are the kind of not, not solutions? Let's solve this problem. What, what, what can be done to, yeah, reduce those money, mm -hmm. money, it's mm. money. Um, there's people who would put in the time and effort and there's volunteers who do run these sorts of programs. But it's difficult because, you know, you want to make sure everyone get, has food. 
you know, you got to pay for fuel, and you know, fuel's expensive. Mm -hmm. As now, so sometimes you have to rent rent the minibus, or and then you have to sort of uh, often have insurance to cover these things. So um, people make it all very complicated, and they say, "Oh, this won't." But when you speak to people who run these programs, they just say, "Just give us it. We only need a little bit. We only need a little bit." And they said, you spend all this money on these preventative programs, these other programs, punitive programs, you know, um, when if you just gave us a sliver, all of us a little sliver of this pie, a big difference. we yeah. could do this. Yeah. And so many people would benefit. And, and, you know, and then there's, you know, racial divisions. So, mm -hmm. for example, they know that within London, the green spaces... And uh, people, uh, it's mostly frequented by the white population and the wealthy white population. Uh, and they have privileged access to these spaces. And there's more of them in where they live, right? Mm. So if you map the blue and green spaces and who lives along the new developments along the river um, and who has access to the parks, the big, beautiful parks with the big old trees, yeah, it's class and it's raced. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's racialized. So um, these are issues to address as well. Um, yeah. And uh, and try to ensure everyone feels welcomed and inclusive and has access to these these places so they can seek out their version of happiness in them. And they're all going to have different versions of happiness and what they want from these places. But I think that that, that inequality those social inequality, this is a big issue that hasn't been addressed. There's a lot of romantic literature about nature and access to nature and well-being, but we need more critical literature which identifies, well, for whom? Yeah. Yeah, for whom? Because we all deserve to be happy. We all have the, mm. not deserve, we have the right to be happy, mm. you know? So does your work bring you happiness then when you talk about, yeah, everyone deserves to be happy where, where do you find happiness do you find happiness in your research where else I, I i find happiness when in my research when i'm doing work with the communities i love mm -hmm. that like mm -hmm. i just enjoy i'm always with different communities it's community level work we make art together we um, arrange exhibitions together, we swim together, we surf together, we experience these places together, um, we go to woodlands together, and that process makes me happy. It does mm -hmm. make me happy. And I, of course, find happiness by being in the sea, but also, you know, sometimes things I do, t because I have a critical mindset, <laughs> uh, and I'm a little bit, not a little bit, I'm quite a lot political, can you ever switch off? <laughs> sometimes it's difficult to switch off. Yeah. yeah. And you sometimes yeah. see things happen and they're quite, they're injustices and inequality. Mm. And I, like I'll be in the scene, I'm getting angry because I'm just like, like for instance, you'll see how some men are speaking about some women. You're like, mm. what are you, you're making those women feel uncomfortable when they've come here to feel good in this space. Mm. And like, so instances like that really get to me and then you know and I really loathe and you know I'll be at the beach having a great time with my family and then you know you'll hear snide comments about say people oh you know 
Oh, there's that crew from, there's all the young people from sort of Wall's End are down here at the moment. And, and you're like, what are you saying? It's like, Does I, it matter? Yeah, and I'll get really angsty and, <laughs> and agitated. So my happiness just dissipates pretty quickly. <laughs> so so how, do you, how do you manage that then? How do you, when you say it's hard to switch off, how do you manage that? Um, I don't really manage it. I have to just, <laughs> I just have to go with it. I think yeah. I've learned, sometimes I used to to manage it. I used to just try and walk away, say nothing. But then I realized that was being complicit. Um, and then I said, no, I actually have quite a lot of research data which can back me up. <laughs> and I'm like, look, and I will. <laughs> you picked the wrong fight. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something because you're not getting away with this or if something's mm. being done. And I feel like it's a bit of injustice or if I can help in some way um, help a place recover or heal, um, then I'm on board and I'll get mm. a lot from that. Um, mm. So, yeah, you've, I go with the flow, I think, is that's all I can do. Rather than try and control it, I have to just go with the flow and experience. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I used to try and chase off feeling sad about something or angry about something. But increasingly, the sea taught me this. I had to just let go of, um, because you can't. If, like if I'm in say big surfing, big surf waves, you know I can be try and bite the waves. I can try and fight the sea. I can try and control the sea, and I'm gonna fail every time. It's gonna <laughs> kick me back to the beach. It's the sea. It's the sea, <laughs> and it, it has. It's like. It's ambivalent towards me and it yeah. just exists and it's going to do its thing. And you're like, whoa, uh, this is my place. Puts me in my place and says, okay, take a breath, <laughs> go back to shore. And so that does give me a lot of happiness going in and out of the water. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I like that. I, yeah, that analogy of just going with the flow pardon the pun with you know with our conversation about blue space but i think yeah just go with it you yeah know, fight it bruce lee yeah. what bruce lee say be like water my friend be like water wise words <laughs> they were wise, wise words, words. <laughs> i've been flippant but you know there's something about that yeah. which, which helps yeah. me personally i don't know whether that yeah. other people you know will look after their sense of self and who they are differently i think we all mm. find our own strategies and techniques to mm. do that um, mm. um yeah of course mm. yeah it can go wrong way sort of into alcohol and addictions and things um which can be troubling for people but um you know there's more people more qualified than me to bring people out of those sorts of ways mm. of coping mm. I think we're almost coming to the end of the interview, Cliff. It's been it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I could just sort of sit and listen for hours and hours about your research and the stories that you've you've come across. Where where can people find out more about what you're up to and what you've been finding out uh, about? Um, you could just go to you could, if you search my name, Clifton Evers, at the Newcastle University website, and just put to put in Newcastle University Clifton Evers. Um, something will come up on my something staff page. Up. Yeah, Not my sure staff will come up. <laughs> my, yeah, yeah. My, my staff page will come up, um, and there I've got all the links to the different projects. Mm -hmm. um, we started building a website, but that 
about, we call it polluted leisure, you know, how people don't just give up because of pollution, they persist mm -hmm. even though there's pollution. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been real exciting. We've made short films and plays and things about that. So we're still adding to that website. So I won't give that, it's, you can find it via the Newcastle University. Uh, um, website I think is probably the easiest way for people to, to access that. I'm always fascinated when I go onto an academics page on the university oh. and I just read all of this stuff that people are doing it's just incredible yeah they find the time to do it all but it's just a, a, amazing all the different things yeah we try i mean we try but also sometimes we burn ourselves out and i think that's <laughs> not so good either um but yeah but often you see what we've we have done but there's a lot mm. of people behind the scenes yeah. who make these things possible and like i couldn't have done 80 percent of what i've done uh that what you'd find on my page without the communities so the communities are always first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're everything to what I do. So yeah. I'm there. I always often see myself as this is just how I view myself as an academic. I'm in service to the community. You know, I'm there to work for them. I'm yeah. working for the institution, but I'm there. What does the community want me to find out or work mm -hmm. on? Okay, how can I help them? I'm a resource. Mm. So, so yeah, if anyone has any ideas or they'd like to participate or, or, or make suggestions to me, yeah, just reach out too. Yeah, let's, mm. let's, let's do things. Let's make things. Excellent. Well, I mean, it's been great talking to you. Um, as I say, Blue Space and the benefits of it and the ways people experience Blue Space have come a, a few times in our past interviews whether it's wild swimming or just living and being close to the sea yeah so it's been fascinating again just find just hearing a different angle to blue space and yeah and, and how it contributes to happiness and as you say well-being so uh thank you so much cliff it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this morning oh it's been a pleasure talking to you i love talking about this stuff i, I could go for another three hours but we, i know we don't have time <laughs> That'd make a very long podcast. That would be a make for you. a very long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cliff. All right. Thank you very much, Alex. Bye-bye. So that was Cliff. What did people think? I, I guess on a very surface level, I'm delighted that he, he gave a um, shout out to all the knitters out there. Thanks, Cliff. I was very happy yeah. about that. <laughs> and I, I just thought the interview was, um, there was poetry in the expanse of, of different things that, that Cliff was talking about. The waxing and waning of happiness was particularly lovely. And I think it's one of those conversations and there's been a few as part of this podcast that I need to listen to again and unpack because some of the things that Cliff was talking about particularly towards the end around racialized spaces mm. and access to mm -hmm. landscape and access to seascapes and being complicit and, and challenging uh, yes. things that yeah. I've personally been thinking about for a long time but very particularly in the last sort of 18 months or so so uh, yeah it's it's one of those conversations Alex I think I'll go keep going back to 
and mm-hmm. thinking about because it's very current and I think working in that area where you are listening to and immersing yourself in people's experience is a very privileged position. It needs mm-hmm. care and responsibility. So it's really fascinating, but huge amount there to yeah. to think about. So much. And I, I loved, yeah, what you were saying there about, comp- you know, being complicit in, in, you know, hearing those conversations. And I just loved how you said, I've got a lot of data and a lot of research behind me that I can kind of use. There's no excuse for me not to say anything. I love that, that he was, you know, quite, quite happy to to challenge people when he hears them say something that is just not yeah. right at all. Um, yeah, there was loads in there, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Kath, what about you? Following on from that, really, he really challenged me with that part of the interview. And I was thinking back in remembering the past's memory collection, we've got a lot of memories of going to the seaside, going to the beach. And it hadn't fully struck me that a lot of those were people who didn't have access to the beach on a regular basis and who made special, special trips like once a year to go to the beach. And the the vivid memories of being there and doing beach type things. One of the stories in the collection is of a family who would go as a family, an extended family, go down to the beach and they would take a suitcase full of sandwiches and pop. And and then for him to to raise that idea that you wouldn't be accepted, you would be made to feel uncomfortable. And that made me uncomfortable because I walk along the beach regularly and hear people making offhand remarks about, oh, can they not keep these children under control? Or, and we are absolutely complicit in it. So I, I really thank him for um, for raising that. Quite right, Andrea. It takes, it takes two or three listens. The one I really liked was at the beginning where he said that he personally discovered Northumbria. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, hang, hang on a minute. <laughs> You're an Australian. <laughs> oh, it was so, but, but oh, yeah, it was super interview. Really loved it. Yeah. Mm. I, I liked how he described, you know, just going with the flow as well, with, you know, pardon the pun when we were sort of talking about blue space, but, you know, as far as your well being and whether you're unhappy, happy, just going with the flow and not wor- trying not to worry too much and just seeing where seeing where life takes you really and the the other one was his, was his point. the knowledge that he'd gained down in color courts about personal risk management about whether you swim through the pollution or not mm. and i thought that is that's magnificent <laughs> and do you know what the evening after i'd done that interview it was on Look North that they were they were discussing that very thing. I thought, I've just been talking about that with Cliff. Oh, oh my goodness! It was just really interesting. Yeah, that just like by chance this conversation. There was a huge uh, article on the news about it, and I was like, ah, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, oh, amazing. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that lovely interview. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you, Kath. Thank you, Andrea, and thank you, Cliff. If you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we'd love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidestohappiness.co.uk 
or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be spreading joy and happiness around the Northeast through this podcast, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle Covid Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. Next time, we talk to Emma and Debs, who run Live Well CIC, based in Sacriston in County Durham. Live Well delivers high quality, emotional, physical, social and personal well-being support to children, young people and adults throughout the North East. We talk about how they challenge the barriers between people accessing social care and well-being services. So you'll hear me ask questions like this. Do, do you think, you know, living well, people living their best lives, is that something that should be straightforward or do you think some people find that quite challenging? And here Emma and Debs give answers like this. I think it's, it can be very, very challenging. It's really hard to put yourself first when you're, you're being mum, you're working, you're looking after children, you're helping other people. It's so hard to just stop, pause and think, what can I do for me? Mm. But when you start to do little things, you realise actually it's really easy to do some tiny things every day. They don't have to be huge, but one tiny thing every day can make a massive difference. Mm. Absolutely. I think when we set up four years ago, I remember sort of writing our business plan and saying, now now more than ever, life's so busy and we really need to make the time to to put to put these things into action. And that was four years ago. So I, I would say even more now than four years ago. It's it's just it's almost like it gets more and more important every single day. Um and the more the more that we need to do that, the more that we as an organisation need to need to provide, and and it, that's we just grow and grow and grow, really, don't we? Mm-hmm. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you're enjoying listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness. Take care, and see you all again next time for another episode. <laughs>